Hey, 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 it's Burke Allen and the Big Time Talker Podcast. We're on everywhere. Spotify, Apple iTunes, iHeartMedia, wherever you can download your podcast. Brand new episodes every Tuesday. And this week, my very special guest may sound like Joe Pesci, but he has a completely different career. Here he is, NASA astronaut, Charlie Camarda. Hey, Hey, great to be here, Burke. You know, I'm the Goodfellas astronaut selection for uh, 1996. You are indeed. How does a kid that grows up in Queens wind up in a space shuttle? I mean, that's got to be a long and, and winding story. But when you were a kid, did were you into the space program? Because you graduated from high school when? Uh, like late 60s, early 70s, right? 1970. Oh, so that's right when when Armstrong yeah. is on the moon. I, exactly. Uh, I watched when I was, uh, must have been a sophomore, junior in high school, right? Alan Shepard, I was nine years old. And you know as well as I do, and, and folks from that era, you know, I grew up uh, a little Catholic school. We were huddled under the desks. We were doing those air raid drills in case... We had a nuclear war with our arch enemy, the the, the Soviet Union. Yeah. But um, but those seven Mercury seven astronauts, those were like these unbelievable heroes to me when I was a kid growing up in Queens, New York. So you do remember then watching Armstrong take the first step on the moon live on television? Oh yeah, I was downstairs in my basement in Ozone Park, Queens. Little TV. We were huddled around it and we watched. Every minute of it, just like almost every other kid our age and adult our age at that time, right, that had a TV. Could you have ever dreamed uh, as you watched that, uh, you know, this is what I want to do with my life or someday I'm going to do that? Oh, absolutely, Burke. You know, I was one of those kids that I, I was like seven, eight, nine years old. I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, as soon as I I knew that this was playing out on, on stage nationally, internationally, that was something I always wanted to do. I mean, these people were, you know, etched in my mind. I was constantly that little geeky kid constantly asking questions at his uh, his mother's apron strings, nagging at her. And um, did and, they try to tamp that down, though? I mean, what, well, let me ask you this. What did your what did your mom and dad do for a living? Okay, so my dad was, all my grandparents came from Italy, you know, so I was second generation Italian American. And okay. my father was was going to be a star baseball player. He was AAA playing baseball and he was in love with my mom, was getting homesick. And he decided to raise a family and give it all up and become a, a butcher with his, his uh, family had a small little butcher shop in Ozone Park, Queens. Now, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So first of all, you said your dad was, he played AAA ball. So he was one step away from the Vicks. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was good. He was an amazing, he was an amazing athlete. Um, What position? What did he play? What position? He played third base, man. He had a rocket for an arm. Uh, You know, if I was bad, my dad didn't have to chase me down. He'd just (laughs) take off a slipper and wing it across the room and, uh, Hit me like a little wildebeest until he could walk over and grab me. <laughs> well, your mom must have been something else for him to give up the baseball dream because he could have been in the in the major leagues. Oh yeah, my dad. My dad was in love with my mom. It's oh, it was they were married their entire life over 50, 50 years, fifty five plus years, and he just worshipped my mom and that poor young kid. He was too young to go into World War II. So he was playing baseball back when a lot of the big time players were out there fighting, fighting the Great War. Right. And, um, and he just couldn't stay away, couldn't be away from my mom. And uh, and so he decided to become um, go back to the family butcher business so he could raise a family and gave it all up and never, never blinked, never looked back, never said, woe is me, never, never heard a, a peep of, from him about it. Mom worked at home. Did mom worked was a stay-at-home mom. And believe me, she had her hands full. She only had me and my, my brother was three years older than me. But I was, I was the one that was really the handful. And I just realized 
recently that it's confirmed that I probably do have ADHD and probably had it when I was a kid. I was listening to a Uberman podcast, Uberman podcast and uh, he said, if you have piles on your desk and you can't see it, the audience can't see it, you probably have ADHD. Here's <laughs> your sign. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that was the problem. And of course, the nuns, we didn't have, um, we didn't have what, what, what do they use? Adderall? What do they use for kids uh, that have ADHD? Yeah, Adderall now. Sure. Yeah. The cure then were, were the, uh, the, uh, the nuns in elementary school. They made sure we paid attention. So you get the that ruler was, whacked upside the head. Yeah, exactly. That was Christianity's answer to uh, <laughs> ADD. So, so all right. So back to my original question. Then, so you're nine years old or thereabouts. Dad's a butcher in Queens. Mom's staying at home with you and your big brother, and you go to her and say, "I, I want to be an astronaut. I want to do what these guys are doing that I see on TV." <laughs> Do they think you were nuts? Do they want to commit you? Well, it's like any kid, Burke, right? I want to be a fireman. I want to do this. My mother's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's the typical overprotective mom. I was always at her at her side asking her tons of questions. And at a very early age, she taught me how to get answers to those questions. And it taken me to the library, uh, making sure I read at an early age, and I would just be consumed in books and all kinds of crazy things. And she could leave me alone in the basement of my house and of our house, and I would go to the local drugstore, get the chemicals, and make the rocket fuel in the basement of my house, exactly like our good buddy Homer oh, Hickam. Exactly. You're the Queen's version of Homer Hickam. Wow. The, the Queen's version of Homer Hickam, you know, launching rockets in the backyard, going over the houses into the streets. Not Didn't have a whole lot of land like you guys had in West Virginia. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so this this Catholic school you went to, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true or not, but this was like a, a school that was an athletic powerhouse, but it was a big academic school, too. That was my high school. That was my okay. high school. I went to Archbishop Malloy high school. And it's and kind of a big deal, right? It, it was a big deal because it was, you had to test to get in there. Right. And, um, and they had kids from, we had uh, Venus Gerolitis. We had, uh, you know, tennis pro. We had several basketball pros in that school. Baseball pros came out of that school. Amazing, amazing school for this. You know, back then it was probably 99% these white, mostly Irish kids playing basketball against kids in Powell Memorial, Brooklyn, and we'd be walking away with the state championships and things like that. It was crazy. Wow. And academically, it, you had to test to get in there. So, so you're showing some, uh, you know, some of the stuff that might get you towards your goal. Did it waver though? I mean, was it when you're a little kid, you say, I want to be an astronaut when you're in high school and you discover sports and girls, do you still want to be an astronaut? I was still a geek. I was a late bloomer, Burke. I was, uh, you know, I was, I was still a geeky kid in high school, but yeah. I had like split personality because I would be on the streets. If, if you've ever seen Goodfellas, that's, that's the neighborhood I grew up in. And that's how the kids were in the neighborhood. I had to go. Right? Yeah, so I had to go out in the neighborhood and play ball and fight, and it wasn't much of a good. I was a terrible fighter, and I didn't like to fight. But the kids, the kids were great. I would try to play sports, but I was a total disappointment in baseball. But my father, my father didn't hold that against me. I tried <laughs> football. I tried basketball. The only thing I was really good at was handball, racquetball, paddleball, anything off a wall with a ball. But no baseball. You didn't get the baseball gene. So no, I didn't get the baseball gene. So you, when you went away to college, um, did you go into some sort of uh, engineering, aerospace kind of thing? Yes. Yeah, so um, you have to remember, I'm this geeky kid. My mother's trying to figure out how to how to deal with this kid because I was definitely different than all the other kids in the neighborhood. Yeah, sure. So, um, I had I had three uncles that worked for Grumman Aerospace. Oh, right. Okay. One of the uncles was really sharp and he was working on the lamb and he 
He got into rocket building because I got him into it. So one summer, I spent two weeks with him in Long Island, and we made all kinds of fireworks displays. He showed me around Grumman Aerospace. I saw the LEM when it was being built. And um, and so my mother always connected me. I connected with these people because we had the same interests. So um, it, it kind of fueled my passion so that, you know, at Archbishop Malloy, we were, I was very lucky to go there because it, like junior year, you basically take these tests and they tell you this is what you're most suited to be. And it was either chemical engineer or mechanical engineer. I knew I wanted to be an astronaut. I didn't want to leave New York. And so I applied to Brooklyn Polytech, which was a phenomenal aerospace, had a phenomenal aerospace engineering department at the time. I would say it was right up there with like an MIT at that time. Oh, wow. And so I went to Brooklyn Polytech uh, to get do my undergraduate. I, I just have to ask you again, your uncle, where did he live again? My my uncle my uncle lived in Long Island. And I just I, like the way you say that, Long Island. Long, Long, Island. Long Island. Long Island. And I <laughs> was I think it was back then it was Levittown. So the Levittown was the builder back then built all these modest, small size houses so that guys coming back from back the, from the war. war. Yeah. 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 And he lived in Levittown, Long Island. Long Island. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so I think this is kind of cool, though, that as a little kid, you know, as a little kid, I wanted to be a broadcaster and it all played out. As a little kid, you wanted to be an astronaut. You managed to get into this great high school and then you <laughs> managed to go to this incredible college that was right up there with MIT and get. Did you get your degree in aerospace engineering? Got my degree in aerospace engineering. And what I tell kids, you know, because. I feel like my whole life has been really a charmed life. I, I'm very, very blessed and very lucky to be where I am. But, uh, you know, one of the teachers came in, one of the professors came in and they said, you know, NASA is looking for some interns. Does anyone want to go do an internship at NASA? And so, you know, three hands shut up and me and one of my other friends got to do an internship at NASA Langley. We worked there a couple of months and so what I and that's when I really sunk in. I love this. But more importantly, I realized what I really love to do is research because NASA Langley was a research center. Right. And so I stressed that to young kids, even in high school, get out there and, and start working. I know you did the same thing, right? Yeah. When you broadcasting, right? Yeah. All through high school. Yeah. Worked at the local radio station. And get a few learn that you learn what to do. Exactly. And, and and you really figure out, is this really for me? Right. And you went on to get your master's in, in engineering. And and at what point after after you get your master's, did you get a full time gig with NASA? How far in? OK, so I immediately after um, that internship, you right. know, I was asked, you know, Charlie, you know, on the last day there, they said, Charlie, are you Puerto Rican? You know, because in Virginia at that time, they never, they never saw too many Italians, I guess. And I guess they thought I was <laughs> I was probably Puerto Rican. And I said, no, why? And they said, well, because it would be easier to hire you next year. And then I kept thinking, well, maybe I should have held back. Maybe on, I can be a Puerto Rican. You know, maybe some way. I, you know, they didn't have DNA tests back then. I would have definitely said that. But anyway, <laughs> I, I lucked out, Burke. I lucked out. And and they actually hired me. And I think the only reason why they hired me, because back when that was in 74, and we were just starting to climb out of a real depression in aerospace engineering, they were getting fired all over the country. And the only thing that got me in the door at NASA was the fact that they got a they had a chance to look at me and see what I was capable of, because my my grades were just barely above 3.0. You know, I was boxing my freshman year. I didn't take school. I didn't think school was going to be that hard. I thought I was going to breeze through it like high school. And it kind of kicked my butt the first year. So I was climbing out of a hole. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, maybe they were afraid that because of the Italians back in Queens that, that you would send somebody down to kneecap the hiring agent if you didn't. No. Yeah, it might terrible. See, I shouldn't say that. I'm typecasting you. But you said it, it, though. You said that was your neighborhood. You're surrounded by these guys. I, I'm telling you, I know some of the guys. 
uh, because my I had to deliver to them because my father was the local butcher. I know some of the good good fella type crews. And a matter of fact, my um, when I was interviewed to be an astronaut, they asked me, did you ever have any near-death experiences? And um, I asked them, I said, well, how much time you have? Because I took, had to take the A train through from Queens through Bed-Stuy to get to Brooklyn Poly. And the two psychiatrists are looking at me. They says, no, just, just give us one. And the example I took was this guy from the, this mobster basically tried to kill me one day on a, on a Belt Parkway in Queens. Wow. <laughs> wow. This yeah. is not the average astronaut story, I don't think. Well, let me tell you, I thought it wasn't a big deal. I had to think when that was the closest I ever came to dying, you know. And so as I was telling this story, I thought it was a good story. But as I looked up these two psychiatrists, they have like their eyes are like wide open. <laughs> their mouths are open. It was like they were in shock. I felt like I had to calm them down a little bit because I thought I thought they had just listened to how many test pilots that were flying a desert storm, Iraq, how many near accidents these these poor these test pilots may have had. I thought they heard it all. And then I, I thought, I'm never going to get hired. They, they think I'm like, it's insane to hire this, really this Joe Pesci-esque street kids <laughs> from Ozone Park. Oh, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. So... <laughs> So I, I want to take you back to when you got that full-time job offer from NASA and you call home and you talk to your mom. Yeah. You know, mom, and you talk to your dad, who's the butcher in Ozone Park, Queens. What do you think was going through their minds when you say, mom and dad, I, I got my dream. I'm going to work for NASA. Yeah. You know, uh, back at that time, we were putting out our job applications. I went to electric boat in, in, um, in, in Groton, Connecticut, right? Yeah. And uh, the next job offer that came in was to build weapons in Naval Surface Weapons Station in Dahlgren, Virginia. And, you know, this was right around the, the Vietnam, after the Vietnam War. And I, we weren't into, into war type things, right? I wasn't, wasn't going to, I didn't want to go build weapons. I really wanted to work for NASA. But when I got the when I got the uh, acceptance from NASA, that that really sealed the deal. Um, and there was a lot of joy, except my overprotective little Italian mom was kind of sad that her, her little boy was going to be leaving the nest to travel to Virginia. <laughs> You're going to the sticks, son. You're going well, to, to Virginia. <laughs> that's another that's another whole story, Burke, because it really was culture shock for this kid from Brooklyn driving down the eastern shore, going to uh, Langley, uh, NASA Langley in, in Hampton, Virginia. You were a fish out of water, my friend. Yes, I was. I was. I was. And and they were they were in shock when I landed there, too, believe me. You'd never seen anything like them. They'd never seen anything <laughs> like Charlie Camarda. Oh, my God. It was it was uh, I had a great time. Uh, it was a wonderful place to work. It was a research center. They had the most brilliant people I had ever met. And they welcomed you with open arms and they mentored you. And it was just a, a very, a very great learning community for somebody that that really wanted was was, you know, the mind was totally open. I was I was ready to go to work. When you um when you got there, I'm trying to do this math in my head. So if you graduate from high school in 70, get your bachelor's degree in 74. So it's the late 70s by the time you get your master's and go to work for NASA, right? What year well, do you No, I, I no, I started working at NASA in 74. In so 74. another reason for doing that was this was a research center and they stressed advanced degrees, and so they made it very easy. They would pay for you to get your degree. You could get your degree sitting at While your, you work there. While you worked there, yeah. And they would even pay to send you. So when I went to Virginia Tech, they paid full full ride plus my salary, plus a cost of living expense to live in, in Blacksburg, Virginia. So it was a sweet deal. With um with you going in then in the mid-70s, you know, the 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 trips to the moon are coming to an end. So what is what is the mission at NASA become after we stop? sending guys to the moon 
So the beauty of it, the beauty of it, Burke, was that NASA Langley started, it was the first center during NACA, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, right? And so they were the first center that was built. It was really a laboratory so that we would, um, and NACA was started to, to make the United States the premier country, the world leader in aeronautics. Because right after World War One, it started in 1917, NASA Langley, right? Okay. NACA. And, and it was called the National Aeronautics Laboratory at Langley, Langley Aeronautics Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia. Okay. Because we didn't have any planes flying in World War One, So they were doing research. And so at the research centers, when I got there, we were researching all the structures and materials that we would be using to develop the next space vehicle, the space shuttle. So remember, space shuttle came to be in 1981. I was doing, in my branch, we were doing a lot of the hypersonics testing for the thermal protection systems for the space shuttle. So in 74, when you went to work there, the shuttle was already being prepped. I mean, you knew this was what was coming and the work you're doing is going towards that. It was, it was contracts were just being let because the first shuttle wasn't built till 1981. And so a lot of the design for what that vehicle looked like was done by NASA Langley uh, engineers. You know, they did a lot of the, you know, because when you think about it, going to the moon, if it wasn't for Langley Research Center, we would have never beat the the, the Russians to the moon. Right. And so they relied on a lot of these really great NACA researchers that were doing research in, in high-speed aircraft, high-altitude aircraft to now lead us into space. And so a lot of the that same DNA was there when I was there. And so... As long as we could come up with really good ideas for looking at advanced materials and structures for the next generation, hypersonic vehicles like space shuttle, we could just do whatever we wanted to do. It was um, it was a scientist's dream. It was an um, I call it I call what we did research engineers because we were at the cutting edge of the latest and greatest analytical methods and the latest and greatest hardware development, technology development. Um, and that's that's what made us great. That's what made us beat the Russians. Unfortunately, that all is gone away. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What is, it's all gone away now. Expanding. Well, they stopped, they stopped funding applied research at a decent level probably 30, 40 years ago. And so now the only way you get to do any little bits of research is money that trickles down from these large programs. Like the manned spaceflight program consumed a ton of NASA's resources. And so they cut back on doing basic and applied research, the things that got us there. And unfortunately, that's the problem that I see with the country right now and why we're falling behind the Chinese and hypersonics, high-speed computing, you name it. Interesting. All right. So so as a research guy, and, and you guys, as you said, you're, you have a mission, but to get to point uh, B from point A, they kind of leave you to your own devices to figure things out as you go along. And it, it brings lots of interesting stuff in. Is, is that where whoever is in charge of selecting the astronauts that does not seem like the first pond they would fish in. I would no. think they're going to look, you know, for fighter pilots or, or in other places. Now, that, that's totally me watching Apollo 13 and not knowing how it really works. Is this an odd thing that they found you, this research kid down at Virginia Beach, to, uh, to tap on the shoulder and be an astronaut? No, you're absolutely right, Burke. Uh, when you're talking about when the astronauts, they started first started looking at test pilots for all the right reasons. I mean, they're amazing people. They have the engineering background, the test pilots. A lot of them have master's degrees. A couple of them had PhDs like um, uh, Doc Horowitz and, and, um, and of course, uh, Buzz Aldrin, right? Amazing, amazing test pilots that can multitask. It right. was in 1978 that they started looking at what they call mission specialists. 
because now they were designing the space shuttle. Now they want to do engineering. They want to do science in space. So they're thinking about building laboratories. How do we get people on board that once we have this orbiting laboratory called Space Shuttle, eventually Space Station, that we command this and actually do real science? So in 1978, I applied, but I was only there four years. I didn't have an advanced degree. I wasn't selected. But um, but I, I didn't reapply till 18 years later, 1995, 1996. I reapplied because I got custody of my daughter, who was eight years old, and I wanted to give it another shot. But I was totally happy doing research. But um, I just So decided- had you not gotten the gig and you, you not been tapped on the shoulder, it would have been okay. Exactly. And that's what I tell these kids that are looking, you know, if they have a dream to be an astronaut, make sure that science is something you love. If you don't get selected, it's just like pro football or any pro sport. If you want to be in that business, make sure you have something else to fall back on, because it's a very low probability that you will be selected. Right. It's just mathematics, right? Yeah. Yeah. How many people, and you may not know this, how many people applied the year, I think you said it was 1995, that you applied? You were from a pool of how many people? There were thousands. I don't know how many thousands, but at that time, George Abbey, who was the uh, Where's Waldo of space, he's got his finger in almost everything, right? And you could see him on the sidelines, but he orchestrated a lot of where we are today in space. George Abbey was the Senate director And he knew that he had to build up, he had to hire lots of astronauts to build the space station. And so it was the largest astronaut class ever. Our class was a total of 44. We had uh, seven international, we had 10 international astronauts from seven different countries. Um, And so that's probably how I got selected, Burke. I got really lucky once again. And was one of the last people out of the 44 maybe to be selected. (laughs) I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. That's pretty amazing. Um, You were a backup crew member, I read, for Expedition 8 on the International Space Station. But this part of the story, I think, has got to be tough. And and it may be tough for you to talk about. But you um, you were a part of that return to flight mission after the loss of Columbia. And so... Um, if I read this correctly, you had trained with those astronauts that were killed in Columbia. So you go through that and you've got then to go up next after them. So you kind of take me back there in your mind and what you remember about that time. Oh boy. I know. Believe me, it's clear in my mind. We were training in Russia. I was in Russia at the time. And one of the cosmonauts came across the ground separating the uh, the, co- the U.S. cottages from the training center and told us the news that we lost Columbia. We put it on the TV and three of those crew members on Columbia were, were, were people in my class. William McCool, Doc, Doc Brown and Laurel Clark were in my class. All seven of them were colleagues. Uh, the other four astronauts on that crew were the class before us that basically accepted us into the astronaut office and were were our close friends and colleagues. And so it was a very, very sad time. And I was very, very angry for me in that cottage watching and knowing what happened and how our astronauts perished. When you say angry, angry, sad, I understand. Angry, I'm not sure I get. Angry because they showed the video of this, of the launch. And we watched this very large 1400 cubic inch foot piece of foam, almost two pounds, 1.7 pounds, slam into the bottom of the left wing, the port wing of the Columbia vehicle. And this was an area that I spent 22 years of my life studying the thermal protection system. I knew how fragile it was and I couldn't believe that no one called me up after the launch, knowing my background. I could not believe that people at Johnson Space Flight Center didn't realize how critical this was. And, and then when I got back to the to JSC a week later, they made us wait 
in in Russia another another week when I wanted to come home desperately to be with my my classmates and my and my friends and, and astronaut family, I realized how what a bad decision it was and how poorly our, our leadership was and how poorly our technical people were at Johnson Space Flight Center to make this terrible decision. So is there a part of you, Charlie, that feels like had you been around, had you been stateside, that that may not have happened, that you might have been able to do something about it? I don't know. I don't know what I would have been able to do, but I will tell you this, Burke, I would have been in every meeting. I would have been pounding on the door in the astronaut office, the head of the astronaut office. I would have been screaming and kicking. And I would have been one of the few people that would have been supporting Rodney Rocha when he was standing up saying we need to take a photograph of this. And I would have been there when they were making the technical decision and looking at and asking questions about the people that ran that crater code that was uh, was never designed it was a, a poorly a poor code that was a curve fit of of very small pieces of foam hitting shuttle tiles it was only like 50 data points it was a lot of scattering the data i would have questioned the people to the point where they would have had to admit that they didn't know whether or not there was damage there Unfortunately, upper management in the shuttle program office at that time did not have the technical credibility. And even at the lower levels, the engineers did not have the technical knowledge to make that decision. Rodney Rocha was absolutely correct. They should have stood down. They should have brought in people from the other NASA centers. And what I would have done, Burke, I would have called up the two NASA centers that I called up after we lost that crew and after and before I flew in space. And I would have got the right people that actually, when I put together the team after the accident, they basically created the analytical model, the numerical model that was used to predict the impact. We would have had the right people on board to look at that and tell the people at, at Mission Control no, this caused this caused definite damage. We need to do something. We need to save this crew. There was a um, there was a long period of time between fatalities at NASA yeah. and this happened. Now, yeah. You're training to be an astronaut. Obviously, they're telling you all along it's a dangerous job. You know, you're blasting off. You're leaving the planet. Did. Did that sink in with you? Did you realize in your soul that it was that dangerous prior to this happening with Columbia? Oh, I always knew it was dangerous, you know, because like I said, I was working in thermal protection systems, right? I always considered re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. Actually, it's a, a misnomer. It's entering the Earth's atmosphere. You're not re-entering. You're entering because it's the first time you're coming back, but everyone says re-enter. When you slam into that atmosphere, the belly of that vehicle gets up to 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. The wing leading edges get up to 3,000 degrees at the stagnation point. There's a very thin layer of coating on the wing leading edges that's that's less than 40 thousandths of an inch thick. That's brittle. If it chips off, the wings burn up. And, and the tiles, they see 2,600 degrees. You lose a tile or a good portion of a tile, you burn through the aluminum structure. I always considered entry to be the most dangerous part of the flight, right? But of course, we lost Challenger during launch, another right. very dynamic part, phase of flight, a lot of energy, uh, millions of pounds of, of, of combustible propellant, right? And, and we had that terrible explosion on launch. And so you, that was a surprise to us. But the exact, even though the technical reasons for the for the accidents were different, the cultural reasons were almost identical. NASA had not changed the culture, and we had another accident. And that was the thing that probably upset me more than anything, is that we didn't learn, and we should have learned uh, a, a, a very crucial lesson. And we still haven't learned, even after Columbia. So anyway... We weren't going to trash NASA. <laughs> That's right. Well, hey, listen, it's gotta, it's gotta stick in your craw quite a bit. These were your friends. These are people you trained with, and yeah. then 
they say, all right, next flight up, you're going to be the mission specialist. So is there, uh, in your mind, as you look back on it, is there a whole lot of extra precaution made to make sure you guys get up there and back and that you're safe? Were you more scared before you went? You know, to kind of paint that picture of what's going on with you and 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 your shuttle commander and, okay. and that whole thing at the time. Okay, so you have this geeky, ADHD, erratic, uh, incensed astronaut come back to the office, right? And march into my uh, my uh, the head of the astronaut office, and I say, "Listen, I don't need to fly in space." I've been working at NASA for 22 years. I know every single person in hypersonics that knows anything about hypersonic structures, thermal protection systems, yada, 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 at all the NASA centers, the military, the DOD, classified programs. I want to work on these teams. Let me step out of the astronaut office, work on these teams to help us get back up and flying. So you told them, I'm out. I'll leave. No problem. Wow. Yeah. And you were willing to walk away from your childhood dream, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. Was it the right decision to stay? No. Uh, yes, it was. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I basically wrote a 21-page paper, a white paper, and handed it to my my boss, the head of the astronaut office. But when I marched into his office that day, I basically drew up a map of everything we needed to do to get back up and flying because we were severely lacking in capability, technical excellence at Johnson Space Flight Center. And I knew how to correct this problem. And um, my boss must have thought I was crazy. But every single thing I wrote in that paper came true. Even the fact that I said we needed to develop, we needed to have an unmanned auto dock capability for space shuttle because I knew we had it so that in case we did have another problem on the next flight, we could undock the vehicle and land it so we wouldn't lose the vehicle. And everyone in the astronaut office that was a pilot told me I was out of my mind. But when I flew in space, we had that capability. The other thing I did was, he said, by the way, he said, Charlie, you don't have to leave. You could stay here and work in the astronaut office. I'll let you do this. And the person that said that was Captain Kent Rominger. Rominger. Uh, Rommel is his, is his call sign. He works as a VP at uh, Morton Thiokol. He's an amazing guy. He went out on a limb for me and um, stood by me and allowed me to do this. So I put together the first team that basically from Glenn Research Center, Langley Research Center, that basically put together the physics-based model to predict impact and, and prove that that was the thing that caused the problem. So we had that capability. I went in my friend Don Pettit's garage. We didn't tell anyone what we were doing, and we came up with a repair technique to repair wing-leading edges if the next crew were to have a problem. And this was all done before I was selected. I didn't know I was going to fly. I really didn't think I was ever going to fly, Burke. You have to understand, I was pissing everyone off. I was pissing flight directors off and shuttle program managers off because I was telling them everything they were doing was wrong. And, and they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that. But by Kent Rominger, my boss, it must have been something that he saw in me. He basically called me up on Columbus Day, which was a federal holiday. I was at my desk working and he called me up to tell me I was on the next crew. And so while I was still working in my friend Don Pettit's garage, working on a repair technique, I was still training to fly. My wife at that time was telling me, you know, Charlie, you need to stop spending so much time in Don's garage. We were like little kids. You <laughs> could imagine me and Homer Hickam working together building rockets. It was me and Don Pettit in his garage. Um, and my wife said, you got to start paying attention and actually, you know, because you're going to be flying and you need to pass all these tests. So I, 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 and the other thing is, I know, you know, Eileen Collins, I had an amazing, amazing commander right. that covered my back. And if you read her book or listen to the podcast, I do a podcast called Leaning Edge Discovery on ITFSP magazine. Eileen Collins, I asked her, you know, they tried to pull me off that crew 
that flight three times. And I said, Eileen, you were the only, one of the only people that stood up for me and kept me on that flight. Why did you? And she said, Charlie, because after the Columbia accident, I heard what all those people said, those psychologists, and they said, every voice needs to be heard. And I was going to make sure that your voice was heard, as was every single person on his crew. And I looked at Eileen during the podcast, and I said, Eileen, you know, you were one of the few people at NASA after the accident that actually got it. And she's an amazing woman, has an amazing book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, Eileen Collins, lots of great tips on how to be a leader and lessons learned. When you you and Eileen and the crew strap in to go up, knowing what happened on the last shuttle flight, is there a time, even though you know that that machine inside and out, probably better than just about any other human on the planet, <laughs> is there still a moment when that countdown comes on where you are scared out of your mind? You, you know something, Brooke, this is something I always wondered. You know, because I think, yeah, it looks great. It looks great. You know, I'm, and, and like you, I've told you before, talking to you, I was afraid of heights, couldn't swim, and was close yeah. before. So I had to overcome all these fears. I never knew when they actually strapped me in, was I going to be terrified? And I could only speak for myself, but we trained long and hard for that mission because we had a lot of time to train because they had to fix a lot of things to get us ready to fly that next flight. Sure. We could spend the whole hour talking about that. But I have to tell you, I was totally at ease. I was totally calm. I mean, we all know as astronauts, we have probably a one in 80 chance we're not coming back. Those were just the odds. I knew that we had done everything possible uh, to make sure that we would be safe. I was totally at peace. But I will tell you one thing, and I don't know if I showed you this because our viewers won't be able to see this. Your listeners won't be able to see this. But when I flew in my crew notebook, I don't know if I ever showed you this. These are the friends of Charlie list that I carried in my crew notebook. And I actually had to call one of them up there when we had a technical problem to answer it because we didn't trust anybody on the ground. Wow. We didn't trust anyone at Mission Control or their back rooms. And I wanted to hear straight from the experts that I knew at the research centers and around the country whether or not the information we were getting, whether it was true or not. Charlie, you were a uh, a whistleblower is not the right word. But you, were, uh, <laughs> you were you were not uh, the guy that just marches along to the drummer of uh, every everybody else. So, um, all right, let me I ask you. Off, I pissed off a lot of people, but I will say one thing: the rest yeah. of the crew felt the same way. Eileen Collins and the rest of our crew, we had a we had a commitment before we flew in space. Every night we would have a one-on-one meeting with the head of the astronaut office. No one else would be allowed on the intercom loop. That means no Gene Kranz-like flight directors, no one, only the head of the astronaut office, because we wanted to talk directly to them with no one else on the line. Unheard of. Because we didn't trust them. Wow. Yeah. These are the things that people don't know. You're going to have to write, <laughs> you're have to write a book about this. Um, all right. So you, you get up there, and and it may be impossible to describe it, um, but tell me after all of that training, you know, decades, decades training, and yeah. wanting to do this since you were eight, eight or nine years old, finally you're up there, and you look out that window can you put that into words? Can you describe what that feeling was? I'm 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 terrible at that. I'm not a poet. I'm not a novelist like our good friend Homer Hickam. Um, I don't have that artistic mind that, you know, a lot of people get this overview effect. But some of the things stuck out, like the crispness, the clarity, the, the sharpness of the images you see when you see the space station. Words can't describe how crystal clear it looks and how stark it looks, how uh, how dark, dark looks. You know, right. it almost looks like it's three-dimensional, like it's a felt out there that you could reach out and touch. 
Um, but I was the I was the nose to the grindstone. We got a job to do. We only have 14 days. Work, 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 work. Andy Thomas used to drag me up from the mid deck, put my <laughs> face, put my face in the window, and calm me down and say, Charlie, you need to look out the window and and look and and appreciate it. And and thanks to him, you know, we got to see some amazing things, Burke. Got to see a um a sandstorm across the deserts, across the Arabian Peninsula, and what that looks like. You can actually see the brown cloud. Uh, it was amazing solar activity, so we got to f- actually fly through these amazing uh, southern lights as we were going through the atmosphere. It was it, it was beautiful. It really was. Um, but the thing of it all, the thing that when people ask me what stands out the most it was that team because we had trained so long and hard, longer than most other missions. We had trained as a team, as a as a class, as a crew for about a year and a half. And so we were so tight. Our families were tight. Sure. The, the amazing, tough jobs that we had to do. We had to perform an emergency EVA. Otherwise, I wouldn't be speaking to you right now. And we did it without a hitch because of this amazing team that we had on orbit and the amazing team we had on the ground. One of the things that I will say that NASA does better than anyone else, the human space flight program does better than anyone else is training. We have the most amazing trainers that prepare you for this in the pool, in the simulators, virtually using virtual reality on the computer that we were so well trained that everything went without a hitch. It was really, it was beautiful to, to be part of that team. Really. Sounds like it. And it it sounds like things sort of came full circle when you get back on the ground, you, um, despite being a bit of a rabble rouser, were named the director of engineering at NASA's Johnson space center and uh, and continue to serve to the Office of Chief Engineer, uh, NASA headquarters. You retired a couple of years ago, and since then, um, the the privatization of spaceflight and the space program has really started to take off. I, I wonder, as we wrap up, overall, what your thoughts are on on the Blue Origins and the SpaceX and how they do things differently, whether it's better or worse, how they can or can't work well with NASA. So what's your sort of 100-foot view on those guys? Here's my 100-foot view on this. Putting it in perspective, NASA doesn't build any airplanes, does it, Burke? Right. No. Airplanes, right? Uh, Wright Brothers uh, did, did a great job. The government was into it in, in the beginning. But the money makers, the people out there, the entrepreneurs that made it and spread it and grew the industry were all out there in industry. Uh, the way I see NASA, NASA should not be operating and 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 launching spacecraft. That's an operations uh, pr- a program, uh, an operations and a production system. NASA shouldn't be doing that. NASA should be getting back to doing real applied research, looking at the next generation uh, ion thrusters, uh, hole thrusters, advanced propulsion systems, material structures thermal protection systems to make sure we do this safely, doing the far-term research. What you're seeing right now with the Elon Musk and and the um, Jeff Bezos is that industry is building their own engines. We can get out of the chemical rocket engine business, leave it to industry. They're going to figure out how to make money. NASA should get back to doing real research. Otherwise, the Chinese will be beating us to the moon. And if we lose that that second space race to the moon, which I don't think we should be doing, we should be going to Mars, I think we're going to have probably a reverse Apollo effect that's going to be so damaging to the economy in this country that we're going to be relegated to where Russia is right now in, in the next 10, 20 years. If you would know as well as you, Charlie Camarda, <laughs> you uh You've been on the inside for a long time, and you're keeping an eye on how it all shakes out. Uh, and there is definitely a book in you, and maybe that book should have to do with 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 research and the systems and processes that uh, yeah. keep our guys and ladies safe up there. 
Yeah, it's 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 a U.S. thing. It's a it's a national thing. The U.S. as a whole has not been investing in the right kind of research, applied research. We're more focused on the near term, and we're getting our lunch handed to us by the Chinese in hypersonics, uh, you name it, advanced computing. And it's, I'm a little worried about it. I'm, I'm a little worried at this point. So yeah, I do have a book in me. I believe that research culture, if we had that research culture during Challenger and Columbia, it would not have happened. I believe the same things could be said about what you're seeing in Boeing 737 MAX and how badly their uh, culture de degraded. And a lot of other industries have the same problem. It's an interesting concept. And what an interesting life you've led. What, what gets you <laughs> excited now to get up in the morning? Uh, what gets me what gets me excited now is writing the book and trying to show people that we can turn this around. I really believe I wouldn't do anything. I want I don't like to throw stones at anyone if I don't think I, I if I'm not going to jump in there and help solve a problem. So I am working on solving the problem. If NASA won't listen, I'm sure other industries might might need that kind of help. But the other thing that really floats my boat is education. Not only educating professional engineers, but I love, I have five grandkids, I'm going to have five grandkids total in August, but I love the education. And so my big epic challenge now is running a nonprofit called the Epic Education Foundation and transforming education in this country, democratizing it for kids everywhere, especially in rural communities, disadvantaged communities. We should be doing this. It's easy to do the internet as long as we can get internet service to all these kids. Let them be little Charlie Camardas and Homer Hickams in rural parts of the world, learning everything they need to know by themselves. Where you go? One more time. Just humor me. Where did your uncle live when you were growing up? My uncle lived in Levittown. My uncle Arnold worked for Grumman Aerospace. I got to see the Lem when I was a little kid. He taught me how to fly remote control planes. And I taught him how to build rockets, only he really taught me how to make them fly. He got the bug, and we were doing pyrotechnics and building um, fireworks displays, where nowadays we'd probably have hope of Homeland Security knocking on our door. <laughs> <laughs> Never take for granted the influence you can have on a young person. That's good stuff. Charlie Camarda, NASA astronaut, former director of engineering at the uh, Johnson Space Center. It was a blast talking to you today. The man, big time talk, uh, Burke Allen. I love you, man. And thanks for having me. Right back at you. I tried to get him to say Long Island one more time. He wouldn't Long it. Island. <laughs> we'll go there. We'll knock down a few. Get a few Italian ices in Long Island with Charlie Camada. Oh, some great places, some great uh, uh, pasta places, and uh, some pastry places, definitely. My man, there he is. Check him out online. Charlie Camarda, NASA legend. And thank you for listening. I sure appreciate you being here. If you like what you hear, fresh episodes every Tuesday, wherever you download your podcast at our studios in Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.